0: Acts chapter 5, you'll find it there on page 1097. We won't wander too far from that passage this evening, so it would be, be good to have it open before you. Let us pray. Father God, we know that every part of your word is useful For us, uh, that you teach us and and challenge us and encourage us from the pages of Scripture. Tonight as we come to look again at this particular uh, part of your revelation, uh, this account of those early believers who followed after Jesus Christ, we pray that your Spirit would would move among us, would prompt us, uh, and would inspire us to live for you and for your glory as they did. Lord, we pray that the church uh, would once again be a powerful and vibrant community in our time uh, because we have read and been changed in your word. Come and meet with us, we pray. Amen. It's my birthday today. Thank you. (laughs) I don't see a cake or anything here. It's um... for a special treat today, Claire arranged for me to do something that I'd wanted to do for a while, actually, but I'd almost forgotten about it. I'd always wanted to go on one of those lagging boat cruises, uh, one where you, you get to go up and down the river a little bit and see a little bit of what's going on there on the shores of the lagging. So I went on one today, and it was one particularly oriented towards the Titanic area. So it went down into the Harlington Wolf part of the river. Um, it was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. One, one moment, though, really struck me, and it wasn't the historical focus on the Titanic. It was when we sailed into the Abercorn Basin, as it's called, just behind the Odyssey. I don't know if you've been down there recently but you would have seen the the new flats that they're building there i think they're up to about the seventh or eighth story now they're going to build really fancy big apartments sorry i used the word flats that always annoys people who live in, in nice apartments if i call them flats uh, sorry that's a cheeky habit i have uh, the the apartments down there they're up to about the seventh or eighth story there now of what are going to be very exclusive apartments built around some fancy marina type place and i was really struck by it all again since i've come home to northern ireland i can't help but notice the incredible redevelopment of belfast a lot's happened already but i I sense that we're actually only at the beginning of this whole process i've seen you know recently there we have the victoria center opening up with all the the song and dance about that at the moment i must say i'm keeping my eye on things that are happening over on this side of the river uh, the titanic quarter that's going up uh, you'll have seen the posters as you're driving into town for scirocco keys another huge uh, redevelopment on the the riverfront there as i've been watching this stuff in in recent months and years i think it's very exciting i think it's an exciting time to live in belfast as I watch it uh, as a minister of the gospel, I find it quite challenging too. Because I look at these new communities that are coming up, uh, the visions for life that's being presented there. And, and I, I look at all this and I wonder can we bring the gospel to this new city, this new Belfast that's beginning to emerge here in our, on our doorstep? the reality is that in recent decades we we haven't done all that well in the city more churches in the city center have closed and have opened so when i look at all the stuff happening there in the city i I look at it and i I feel a a, a tremendous sense of excitement of challenge but also sometimes I, i wonder and i ask myself can we do this can we do the thing that god has called us to and bring the gospel once more to the city of Belfast. Will we be able to do it? That's the question that's in the back of my mind as I read and and as we read together Acts chapter 5 this evening. It's a question that we'll come back to a couple of times throughout this sermon. Let's pick up the story where we left off. We left off at chapter 5 verse 11 that was a few weeks ago just before easter and we pick up in verses 12 to 16 luke gives us there a a very quick summary of the life of the early church and he's given us a couple of these before you'll maybe remember there's a very famous one in chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 he tells us there a lot about how the early believers spent their time they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Whenever we were last together, we noticed the second of Luke's three early summaries in chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. He tells us not about how they spent their time, but about how they spent their money. And we thought about the the generosity of the early church when we last met. We are told there that they shared everything that they had. Now, in this this third short summary, Luke's going to draw our attention to another particular thing that's going on in the early church, and that's the miracles. That seems to be the focus of this short summary. Luke tells us that the believers met together in Solomon's colonnade. So that's one of the two big uh, covered areas surrounding the temple. And he tells us that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. But he tells us that healings in particular seem to have been prevalent. Uh, As the news of this healing ministry spreads beyond the city bounds, we read of people coming in from the outskirts of the city and beyond with their sick, wanting them to be healed. I I don't want to focus in a big way on this section this evening. I I want to, to move ahead to the other stuff. But before we move on, I just want you to take a step back Look look again at that passage, read it on the full, and see if there's a a picture presented there in verses 12 to 16. Does Luke's description of the early church strike any chords with you? Can you think of somebody who performed signs and wonders among the people? Can you think of somebody who, who separated people into those who accepted him? and those who rejected him. Can you think of anyone who had such power over sickness that people brought along their sick on mattresses and laid them at his feet so they might just touch them? It's obvious, of course, my answer here. It's Jesus, of course. As I read this paragraph, I just thought, goodness, I could be reading a paragraph from the Gospels here. Everything that's said here about these early Christians is exactly the same kind of stuff that was said about Jesus in his earthly ministry. Luke describes the early disciples in terms that point us directly to the Savior. I wonder sometimes, as I look at the church of today, the church where I minister, how much direct continuity there is between what we do and what jesus did are his priorities our priorities are we really carrying on the work that he has called us to or we've got caught up doing all sorts of of other things what did jesus do in his life on this earth well the gospel writers agree that he had two main emphases he preached the gospel of the kingdom of god and he went around healing people making their lives better demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of god that he was preaching jesus preached and he healed to follow in jesus footsteps to bring the gospel to your community fully and in the way of jesus christ you preach it and you bring well-being and healing and health to your community now the extent to which you and i are going to be able to do the miraculous things that jesus did that lies in god's hands it's something that i wouldn't rule out at all nor is it something that i could promise to you if, if you wished uh, to, to pursue jesus ministry but the the preaching and the bringing of healing those are the twin ministry of jesus christ as I was thinking about this a wee bit, I think we've taken Christ-likeness, which is a wonderful goal for us to have, and we've, we've, we've shrunk it only to one aspect. We've thought of Christ-likeness only in terms of character. Now, we should have a Christ-like character. There's no doubt about that. The gospel writers call us to that. But whenever I read a passage like this, I wonder if our Christ-likeness isn't supposed to extend to our conduct, to the actual things that we do, that we we start to be more intentional about doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. That's the impression I get when I read here of, of these early believers whose lives mirror so closely the life of Jesus. Friends, that, that probably needs a wee bit of reflection on our part. We probably need to work out what it might mean to be more intentional about doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. But I, for one, am encouraged about some moves here at Kirkpatrick Memorial at the moment. The church community and change process that we're engaging with, I, I hope, is one that's going to help us to answer these kind of questions. How might we not only speak the gospel of jesus christ into our community but but live it out and practice it i think those questions need to be always before us let's move on from from that opening paragraph then and, and we'll spend the rest of our time dealing with the, the persecution the apostles received don't know if you got to see much of the the BBC production over Easter, The Passion. I got a chance to watch all of it in the end. And one thing that I thought was very valuable in it was the way in which it portrayed the relationship of Jesus with the Jewish religious authorities. It gave us, a, I think, a, a reasonable insight into that world. And it showed you the, the friction that there was and some of the reasons why that friction existed. Well, here in the, Luke chapter 5... We're going to see more. Acts chapter 5. Luke tells us more about this relationship, not now between Jesus and the authorities, but between Jesus' followers and the authorities. In verse 17, he tells us that the high priests and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, this is entirely inevitable. This was always going to happen. When Philip was telling us a few weeks ago uh, of of what happened in Acts chapter 4, that was the first incident of persecution and opposition that the apostles faced. They'd been preaching. They'd been dragged in before the Sanhedrin. They'd had their wrists slapped and they'd been told, don't preach in the name of Jesus again. So here they are. They've broken the rules They've done exactly what they were told not to do. So it's inevitable that they are called back now and dragged once more before the Sanhedrin. A couple, uh, three weeks ago when we were looking at the Ananias and Sapphira incident, I asked you to consider that the persecution and the opposition that we see on the pages of Acts, wherever it appears to come from, it always has a common source. It's always that Satan is behind it. I pointed out to you a, a threefold strategy that, that John Stott says that he can see in these, these passages. He says that the first strategy of Satan against the church is direct persecution, the second is compromise within the church, and the third is distraction. Well, when we looked at the Ananias and Sapphira incident, that was the second type of persecution. That was compromise inside the church well here this evening we go back to the first type of persecution whenever we see the apostles hold in front of the sanhedrin this is back to full-on persecution now this strategy had failed in chapter four but just because it fails once doesn't mean that satan stops there we're back the opposition and the persecution continues. We noticed a moment ago that the lives of the early believers was such a wonderful imitation of the life of Jesus. They did the things that Jesus did. But now we're noticing another identification of the followers of Jesus with Jesus. They suffered opposition just as Jesus did their leader had been persecuted as they followed in his footsteps now they too were persecuted these men had been in the upper room with jesus shortly before he died and his words were still ringing in their ears he had said to them no servant is greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you also and it's something we're going to see time and time and time again in the Acts of the Apostles. You can't follow in the way of Jesus and not be persecuted like Jesus. The disciples lived like Jesus. They were persecuted and opposed like Jesus. But now in verses 19 to 21, we see that they're like Jesus in another regard. And this is, this is exciting. They're unstoppable. The authorities here, they've done everything that they can to stop these guys. They've killed their leader. They've commanded them not to preach in his name. Now they've locked them in prison. They've taken pretty much every step that's available to them to stop the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. And what happens? The doors of the prison fall open at night an angel of the Lord enters in and leads the apostles out. As soon as the day breaks, as soon as the fall of footsteps in the temple courts can be heard, the gospel is preached. They're unstoppable, these followers of Jesus Christ. It's, it's amazing in some ways, but then we shouldn't be too amazed that this kind of thing is happening you see because these men really are following in the footsteps of jesus the, the work of jesus is on display here long before anyone had tried to silence the followers of jesus they tried to silence him they'd arrested him they'd kept him under armed guard they'd killed him and they'd rolled a huge stone over the grave where he lay They had taken pretty much every step that was available to them to stop Jesus and his preaching and his ministry in Jerusalem. What happens? An earthquake. An angel comes from heaven. A stone's rolled away. And as soon as day breaks, Jesus appears to his disciples to convince them that he's still alive. He's unstoppable. And so are his followers. Folks, we're coming here to one of the greatest themes in the book of Acts, that the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. You see, the gospel is God's initiative. This is what God is doing in the world. It's not what, what I'm doing or we're doing or, or Franklin Graham is doing or what anyone else is doing. This is what God is doing So it won't and can't be stopped. Luke shows us this wonderfully time and time again in the book of Acts. Here in chapters 3 to 5, he tells us that the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem can't stop the spread of the gospel. Saul of Tarsus, when he arrives on the scene, won't be able to stop the spread of the gospel. The church in Jerusalem, when they stand in the way of the gospel going to the Gentiles, they won't be able to stop the spread of the gospel. Not secular leaders like Herod, whom we read of in chapter 12. Not not Judaizers in the church. Not the Greek pagans of Ephesus. Not shipwrecks or snakes or the Roman Empire itself. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing will stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We began here this evening by thinking about a new and a very secular-looking Belfast that's emerging, one that might have us wondering whether we can still reach it, whether the gospel will still do its work nothing will stop it nothing will stop the gospel of jesus christ spreading in this city and beyond so long as that is the will of god when we pick up the story again in verse 21 the jewish authorities here are looking pretty silly they've called a full Sanhedrin together it's one of those moments where you'd love to have been a fly on the wall they've got everyone together to interrogate uh, these apostles they send for them to be brought out and then the word comes back in a whisper to the high priest they're not there what do you mean they're not there and soon the story comes out they have escaped they're gone And the message comes back that they're in the temple, they're preaching about Jesus, they're doing exactly the thing that they're not supposed to be doing. It's a pretty tense atmosphere when the high priest finally questions them. He refers back to the warning that had been issued to them. He says, We gave you strict instructions not to teach in this name, yet you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to make us guilty. this man's blood. It's loaded language here at this point. The high priest tells us, well he gives us some idea of the impact of the preaching. It's filled the whole city. It's not just a few people who have heard about Jesus. Thousands have heard, thousands have responded and are now part of the community of Jesus. The high priest charges the apostles with making them Guilty of the blood of Jesus. Sounds almost like a a guilty conscience speaking. The high priest is right at this point because the apostles had been accusing them in public of killing Jesus. In his Pentecost sermon, Peter told the Jerusalem crowd, he said, Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Whenever Jesus spoke to the crowd after healing the crippled beggar, he told them, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and the righteous one. You killed the author of life. Whenever Peter and John were hand-hauled before the Sanhedrin the first time, they said, Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that this man stands before you healed. When the apostles preached, they wanted their audience to know that they had killed Jesus. Friends, we may not have been part of that Sanhedrin or even part of that greater Jewish crowd, but we're complicit in the death of Jesus. We're guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's for our sins that he went to the cross. It's because we have rebelled against God. It's because we have rejected God that Christ came to reconcile us to his Father. Peter tells us in the third chapter of his first letter, Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. For all that's that's offensive in the message of the apostles. I think it's wonderful to see the response of some in the crowd at Pentecost. We read in chapter 2, verse 37 of Acts, that when Peter had told them about the part they played in crucifying Jesus, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. We killed Jesus. But we can repent and know forgiveness of sins. when I was talking to the boys and girls on Easter Sunday morning, I talked them about, to them about the radical change that happened in the life of Peter because of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm really beginning to love the Peter who emerges on these early uh, pages of Acts. He's somebody who can't stop preaching about Jesus, no matter what kind of trouble it's going to get him into. I don't know, there's something in me that's drawn to somebody who sees trouble and charges into it. It reminds me of, of childhood experiences and maybe, maybe more recent experiences too. Here he is, he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. These men can really harm him. He knows that. He, they've, he's seen them crucify Jesus. All they're looking for here is a bit of respect for their authority. They simply want them to back down a wee bit, tone down the message a bit, just settle things in Jerusalem down a bit for a moment. But look at Peter's response in verse 29. He tells them straight out that he's not going to obey. We must obey God rather than men. And he doesn't withdraw this accusation that I've been talking about, that they had killed Jesus. He repeats it. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Peter's not going to stop. Not now and not ever. He says we're witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who God had given to those who obey him. We're almost finished. I want to look for just one moment because of an interesting thing that it throws up for us at the the closing section of our passage. Our passage closes with an intriguing insight into an incident in the Sanhedrin. At this point... Peter and the other apostles are in grave danger because it looks as though they may go in the same way as Jesus of Nazareth, their Lord and their Savior. Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin were furious and they wanted to put them to death. This is a precarious moment for the, the disciples. But then a Pharisee steps out of the crowd, a guy called Gamaliel. He's a much-respected, much-loved Pharisee. And at just the moment when the Sanhedrin were about to resort to violence against Jesus' followers, he says, wait a minute, fellas, don't be hasty here. And he recounts two recent examples of upstarts. They'd been creating a few waves in Jerusalem in recent memory. There was Thaddeus and Judas the, Gal- Judas the Galilean. I don't want to elaborate on their stories at all, but I want you to notice how he tells these stories exactly in parallel. They're two versions of the same story. Both of these men appeared, and they drew some sort of a following to themselves. Both of them was killed And all of his followers were scattered. In both cases, their movements fade away. Do you see what Gamaliel is saying here? He's saying, like Thutis, like Judas the Galilean, so Jesus of Nazareth. He appeared. He drew some people to him. There are some followers. They too, after his death, will disappear. He doesn't think Jesus is any different, really, than these other upstarts, these other people who'd arisen in the community. But then he goes on to say something, and and it's prophetic in its insight, I suppose. He said, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. They'll go the way of these other. These other men. But if this is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel is right. The followers of Jesus Christ are unstoppable. That's how we find the early church in these chapters, so full of the Spirit of God, so clear in their communication of the gospel, that no one and nothing can stop them. Will the church of Jesus Christ be able to reach Belfast once more? Yes, it will. Can Kirkpatrick Memorial play a significant role in bringing the kingdom of God into to Ballyhackamore in this immediate neighborhood? Yes, it can. Can crusaders continue to reach young, young fellas and young girls with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes all those of us who know and follow Jesus, we can do these things. If only we we open our lives to the Spirit of God, if only we continue to be faithful in the preaching of the gospel, if only we, we step out in courage into places that might be difficult for us, places that might be dangerous for us, places where we will be unwelcome, if only we will do these things then we'll find that we too, like these early, these early disciples of Jesus Christ, we'll succeed where God wishes us to. We too will be unstoppable. Let us pray. Father God, when we see in your word how nothing could stand in the way of of the message of Jesus being proclaimed and of the church of Jesus Christ growing, Lord, we wonder if that could be true again today. And, And yet, Lord, we know in our heart of hearts that this is exactly your will and your desire for the world. You long to see the gospel spread. You long to see men and women flood into the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you come now and and purify us? The only thing that can hinder the spread of the gospel in Belfast today is the unsuitability of the church as a vehicle For your good news. Lord, would you purify us? Would you, by your Spirit, make us fit for purpose? Would you make us into persons and into a community that can authentically display the glory of Jesus Christ? Lord, we pray for the people of Ballyhackamore, for the people of the city center for the people of the Newtonards Road and Titanic Quarter and Scirocco Keys. We pray that they would find Jesus and that you would use us to play our part in this. Help us to see the way forward. Amen.